coffee before I come up here. I didn't get much sleep last night. Oh, well, good morning. It's good to be here this morning. And, uh, man, is this thing getting taller? I, I, I asked Doug if he could chop a few inches off of it, and when he comes back, I think he's going to do it. But I never, I kind of, I'm like, <laughs> like a hand puppet or something. But anyway, uh, please take your Bibles to First Peter. Um, as you know, I'm, we're going to be going through the, when I'm up here every two weeks, and I know Ron's going through Colossians. Um, I hope you're seeing the parallel there. Um, obviously, there's always parallel with the Word of God, right? It's consistent throughout, but there is a specific parallel there between Colossians and 1 Peter that the Lord is working out for us in this church. And so t- please uh, go to 1 Peter. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 5, just 3 through 5. And you're thinking, geez, he's only going to do three verses? We should be out of here early. <laughs> it's Tim preaching, remember? <laughs> but let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. And we're thankful that we're here in your place. And that, Father, even before we got here, you were here. And, Father, when we come together, because where two or three are gathered, uh, Father, so shall you be and the richness of you will be. And so, Father, we just pray your blessing to be upon this, your word. We pray your blessing to be upon this, the message that you've given me from your word. And we pray, Father God, that it would edify this church, build up and perfect the saints of your church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, my mother was born and raised in the Great Depression on a small farm, which is now at Van Hook, which is underneath Lake Sakakawea. Being the second youngest of four, she had an older sister who's still living and two brothers who have also since passed. Um, They grew up poor. I remember seeing a picture of her as a little girl, but not in a beautiful dress, but in bib overalls with her brothers. No, probably Uncle Bob's bib overalls because they probably no longer fit her. They didn't what they could to make ends meet. My, My grandpa was a farmer, but not a very good one and tend to tip the can whenever he got a chance. They did whatever they could to get by. Not having enough forever changed the way my mother lived her adult life. Growing up, we never received anything above what we needed. No extravagance, no excess, no frills, no abundance. I remember going to Ben Franklin. Do you remember those stores? Ben Franklin. To get my shoes for school. And they weren't Chuck Taylors. They were Ben Franklin's knockoff of Chuck Taylors. They were heavy, too, and you could wash them. I remember that. (laughs) I remember one year I asked my dad for a a new baseball glove. I never had one before. And uh, when he did, which surprised me, uh, my mom was none too happy because I still had my brother's older glove, my older brother's glove, which was big, but I could still use it. But I was so thankful for that glove, and I still have that glove today. Now, we were not poor, and we never lived on any assistance from the government or any programs that they provided, but my mom was not to waste anything. She was not a hoarder, though, but she never threw anything away that was of value. 
When she would clean out the freezer at the lake cabin, she would always take that which was not hers, things that we had brought down there and put in the freezer, and then she would return them to us. One year, she returned one sausage, egg, and cheese croissant biscuit. And she goes, this was left in the fridge. I mean, obviously, all I did was throw it in the garbage. But that's the way my mom was. When she died, we went through her freezer and we found several items in the freezer that were several years old. Should have been thrown away a long time ago. In fact, I always joked with my dad, don't stand in one place too long or mom's going to put you in a bread sack and find you in the freezer. When mom died, we joked about these things. But I remember my mom always worried. She always lived a life of fear about what tomorrow might bring, having been raised in the Depression. She always wondered if her and dad had enough money for retirement. When she passed away, my oldest brother became the executor of the will. And he commented to me that mom had several bank accounts spread out through North Dakota in case any one of them would close. It appeared as though my mom placed her hope in what she could save versus placing her hope in whom could save her. You know, two Sundays ago, I preached an introduction to 1 Peter and examined the opening two verses. We know that Peter wrote this letter to the dispersed churches of northern Asia. And with the proposition to live a holy life in the face of a hostile world with a living hope, as we look towards our future glory. This week, we'll examine verses 3 through 5. And the title of my sermon this morning may be also the same title above your, in your Bibles and the italicized above that called a living hope. That we are to live a living hope. So let's begin with verse 3. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. At the very heart of salvation and hope is God's mercy. Mercy in context of this verse means a general providence. The mercy and clemency of God in providing and offering to men's salvation by way of of Christ. It was by mercy that we receive this salvation. Spurgeon said this about mercy. All His goodness to us begins with mercy. No other attribute could have helped us had mercy been refused. As we are by nature, justice condemns us. Holiness frowns upon us. Power crushes us. Truth confirms the threatening of the law, and wrath fulfills it. It is from the mercy of God that all of our hopes begin. And I would agree with that. For if God was not merciful, where would we be? Where would we go? It was once said that mercy is defined as receiving something we do not deserve, and not receiving that which we do. I can't recall who said that, but I agree with him. 
Because we were born into sin, we deserve judgment and condemnation by virtue of God's law. And yet God extended His mercy, and what is important to understand is His mercy did not flow from His kindness. His mercy did not flow from His justice. His mercy flew, flowed from His love. We know the verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It was by virtue of His love that extended mercy. In fact, you can't extend mercy, true mercy, without love. Because without love, it's not mercy at all. And because of this love, as the verse says, He has caused us to be born again. Born again. You know, when Jesus met Nicodemus, if you remember the story, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a leader of the church, a student of the Scripture, a master of the Scriptures. And Nicodemus met him at night because he didn't want to be seen. But he was seeking. He was searching. He had seen what Jesus did. He even attested to that in his conversation with Jesus, that he couldn't do these things without being from God. Jesus, and I love the way Jesus, if you ever do a study on how Jesus communicated with people, he was lovingly direct, right? He was never passive-aggressive. Oh, geez, Nicodemus, you know, let me just tell you some things. It was straight to his heart. And he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Perplexed by this, in what Jesus has said, Nicodemus asked for clarity. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a room a second time? Or can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Now here lies the issue with man in that confined to the flesh, he can only see and comprehend the things of the flesh. His concepts are of the flesh. His understanding is of the flesh. His view of scriptures only extended beyond his religious action, and they were also in the flesh. And although he was the leader of the church, and he knew the scriptures, he was ignorant of what salvation truly was. Being born again is not of works of the flesh, but it is of the Spirit. As Jesus said, unless one is born of the water, and the Spirit, He cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Regeneration and redemption are the work of the Holy Spirit. And no one, and no one can sign. Mm. <laughs> and no one can come except to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, absent of the Spirit's work. Apologize there, I'm bifocals lost me. And it is the Holy Spirit that woos the sinner to Jesus. John 14, 6. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's all done by the sinner. The wooing, the introduction, the conviction, the faith, and the profession. Why is this important to understand? And why does Peter include being born again in a systematic approach to understanding what he is conveying as it relates to a living hope? 
Why is that in there? Because separate of being born again, there is no hope. There's no real hope here on earth. And there's no real hope in the eternal, separate of being born again. In fact, I would argue that a person who is not born again doesn't focus their things on the eternal until it's too late. Before I was saved, I placed my hope in me and the systems that were supposed to support me, from societal systems of government to the military. Even as a heathen, I knew there was no guarantee of any hope in them or in myself. My hope was based on a fallen world. And it demonstrated time and time again that it fails those it's supposed to serve. As a result, I always had a feeling of anxiety and worry and doubt, just like my mother. Because no matter how hard I tried, no matter how safe I wanted to be, no matter how thorough I wanted to make my decisions to make sure it was right, there was always the possibility of things falling apart and failing. My hope was capped by this world in which I lived. I had no choice but to place my hope in the things of this world. And that's a desperate situation in my opinion. But when I was born again, not only was I sanctified and set apart, precious and holy, not only was I redeemed through the precious blood of Christ, not only was I washed from the sin that so easily ensnares me, not only was I justified and imputed with the righteousness of Christ, but I was also given a divine hope, a spiritual hope, a living hope that's transcended this world. My hope was no longer in this world. And the hope that I have doesn't disappoint. Last week, my brother defined meekness. Meekness is a very difficult word to define. It's easy to understand, but hard to define. Another word that is difficult to define is hope. The reason I feel this is the case is because within the worldly definition of hope, there's an element of doubt, wishful thinking. In fact, the difference between worldly hope and divine hope is significant. Let's examine that. According to Webster's Dictionary, the, wor the, worldly defines, the world defines hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for certain things to happen. Now, what word jumps out to you in that definition? To me, expectation. Now, keeping this in mind, now let's look at how the Bible defines hope. And we know the verse, Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. Now, what word jumps out to you in that definition? Assurance. Assurance. Assurance used by the Bible of the writer of Hebrews means trust and confidence that it's going to occur. It's not wishful thinking. It's not, gee, I hope it happens. There's no desperation in it. It's trust and confidence that it's going to happen. There's a big difference between an expectation and that which will occur or we hope to occur and that which is an assurance which we know will occur. And that's the difference between a 
worldly hope and a biblical hope. And the reason the worldly hope is an expectation is because it's derived from an imperfect and corrupt world. Whereas a divine hope is placed in that which is perfect and cannot be corrupted. The fall of man in the garden corrupted everything from man to creation. Therefore, any hope in this world is corrupted by the fall of man and making it imperfect. And so our hope is not in the corrupted, but the incorruptible, in what Peter terms as a living hope. Now, what does Peter mean by living hope? Well, first of all, it's a living hope because it's alive. It's alive. Because of our spiritual birth by way of being born again, we now have the Holy Spirit in us, residing in us. And we are born again to a new spiritual life. We are alive because He lives. Do you remember the song? Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. You know, when I'm in the midst of trials, I sing that song. I sing that song because it gives me that living hope. Because he lives in me. And as we talked about last week, I'm precious. I'm much loved. In fact, that's echoed in chapter 1 of Colossians. Secondly, it is a hope that's not deferred, right? Like your retirement. Man, I hope it's there when I'm getting close to 62. I hope the markets work the way they need to do. Our hope is not deferred to tomorrow. It's for here today. It means we can experience Christ's hope in the life that Christ himself has given us. Remember what Jesus said in John 10, 10? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's for today. And I think if we just took the time and went around this room, and I'm looking at your faces and I'm going, my gosh, the Lord has blessed you immensely. From a walking daughter to a new home to a blessed retirement, new painted walls. God has blessed us with so much. And it's because of today that we can walk in it. Yes, we're going to wait for our inheritance, our eternal reward. But we can live with the living hope today. And this is what Peter is trying to tell the churches. Be encouraged by that. Today may look bleak. Tomorrow, not much better. But you have a living hope. And it transcends the troubles of today and the troubles of tomorrow. Thirdly, it's a hope that doesn't disappoint. The hope of God does not disappoint. Romans 5.5 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This reveals the divine nature of His living hope and that the love of God is poured out into us by His Holy Spirit which we now possess. Think of that. God within us. He's not some distant, far off, 
aloof God that looks down and puts you in a maze and says, gee, I hope you make it out. No. He's in you. Working out His glory. You should never feel alone. You should never feel left. Because God is in you. And because God is within us, all things are possible. Jesus himself testified to this in response to the disciples after he dealt with the rich young ruler. The the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? And he said, what is impossible with man is not impossible with God. Don't ever relegate God to a box of a man. We can't even fathom the depth and the width and the love of God. We're to press in, but we'll never get there, praise God, because it's immense. And just like eternity is forever, His love's depth has no borders, has no depth that ends. Finally, it's hope anchored in an active and growing faith. Paul, when writing about this letter to the Romans, said about Abraham, which applies to us, Now, he said this about Abraham. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. It was the promises of God that was keeping Abraham. It goes on to say, But he, Abraham, grew strong in his faith as he gave the glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had done. If you ever doubt what God can do for you tomorrow, just remember what he did for you yesterday. His promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We should never doubt the promises of God. In dealing with a young man in ministry who had a very rigid view and harsh view of God, I said, you need to read this book. And it was all the promises of God. We need to remember the promises of God. And so our faith is anchored by the ability to fully trust God in His promises. And now, in this hope, it's grounded. And what is our hope grounded by? What do we point to that grounds our hope in our heart? Peter says it right there in the same verse. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what grounds our hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, when Christ died and was buried, all hope was lost with the disciples. A great teacher, a leader who had the hope of a renewed kingdom, were all gone. The earthly hope they placed on him was buried when they laid him in the tomb. The expectation they had placed on Jesus were to destroy by the very system that would put him in the tomb. They were looking for an earthly kingdom. They were looking for Jesus to restore the kingdom of David on earth. But when reports of the tomb Being empty were witnessed and heard, and Christ began to appear first to Peter, then to the twelve, then to the five hundred, then to James, and then to all the apostles, and finally Paul. A divine hope filled their hearts and anchored their faith because Jesus did what he said he would do. Jesus did what he said he could do. 
And the empty tomb has now filled our hearts with the living hope. Could you imagine if the disciples was to go to the tomb and see that Jesus was still lying there? What hope would they have had then? None. But because the tomb was empty, he did what he said he was going to do. He is who he is. Look, he's right here in front of us. It gave him great hope. Such hope that then to live for him under heavy persecution, which many died as martyrs. One cannot possess a living hope lest he be a man who believes in the resurrection because it is the source of our hope because the empty tomb has filled our hearts with that eternal hope. So if the resurrection is the source of our hope, then what then is the object of our hope? Well, when we look forward in the scriptures, we see it. And Peter relays to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. For those who come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, do you know that you're a child of God? Scripture says it, John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You're not just worshipers. You're not just church members. You're just not a, a member of the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination. You are a child of God. You have a heavenly father. A heavenly father. That's intimate. I think we skip over that sometimes. That's intimate. And as children of God, we now receive from Him a Father's inheritance. Listen to what Ephesians says about that. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Paul used six verses to communicate what Peter said in one. I'm not making light of Paul. What I'm saying is, you have two different people saying the same thing. holding the same doctrine, promoting the same inheritance. Paul's has a little bit more depth of theology, but it's the same. You have an inheritance. And Peter identifies this inheritance as imperishable. You know what that means? It means uncorruptible. Uncorruptible. It's undefiled, which means it can't be deformed or debased or affected by outside influences. It's unfading. It means it will never pass away. Why does Peter use these terms? You ever notice that when you read the, okay, Lord, why did Peter use three different terms to describe the inheritance we will receive? 
Well, there's two reasons for that. Remember two weeks ago I told you that Peter's using a lot of imagery from the Old Testament, right? Well, first, to his Jewish listeners, if you go back to the Old Testament, the inheritance of Canaan was to be imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And yet we know through history what happened. It became corrupted. It became defiled. And it faded away. And so Peter is encouraging the Jewish believers in these churches, did you see your earthly inheritance and what happened to it? It cannot happen to your heavenly inheritance. But he also uses those three words for us as well. Because those three words are counterintuitive to what an earthly inheritance could be affected by. It could, our earthly inheritance could be corrupted, could be debased, defiled, affected by outside influences, and it could fade away. It could fade away. We can't put our trust and hope in things that can fade away. By identifying our future inheritance with these words, Peter is encouraging his listeners in the face of their challenges where persecution and tribulation were showing the lack of hope in the things of this world. Remember who he's writing to. People who were being persecuted in the northern churches of Asia. Their livelihoods were at stake. Their substance was at stake. Their provisions were at stake. Their security was of no guarantee in their life. And all they had could be lost in a moment of time. And this is why Peter uses these three distinct words, because they are all speak against what could happen to that which you put your hope in in this world. To be encouraged that what God has given you can never be imperished or undefiled or unfading. You know, we place our hope in a lot of things, willingly or unwillingly, right? Instinctively, instinctively. And any disturbance in the things that we put our hope for will reveal where our true heart is. I realize that's a tough saying, but I have a friend that is, I would say, overly obsessed and focused on money and his retirement. He has a great job that pays well. And his desire is to retire and make the same amount of money he did in retirement that he does today, which is a lofty goal, given what he makes. He's involved in stock, retirement accounts, IRAs, and things I don't even begin to understand or explain to you. He is now eligible for retirement after 30-plus years and could do so tomorrow if he wanted to, but he's still working because he has a financial goal in mind. And every once in a while, we'll speak about money, and I ask him for advice because he's pretty smart. And when the stock market went down a few years ago, it made him hesitate on retiring as his accounts took some hits, as all of ours did. I got nervous myself and moved some of my money into a more secure account, and he told me not to do that because the market always rebounds based on historical trends. My friend is so connected with the market, his hope is in it for his future. It's dependent on the markets. 
His, his hope is based on historical trends in the market with no real assurance of tomorrow. His hope is one of expectation, not of assurance. Because there's no assurance with anything in this fallen world. And when the markets fluctuate, it brought great stress on him as to what he needed to do to preserve what he had. When he was talking about all this, Jesus' words came clear to my mind as a means you know, whenever you talk about money with somebody else, you just like, really? That's going to, you start hyperventilating, right? Because you start to draw from them the nervousness and anxiety that they might have. And then the words of Christ came to me. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me tell you something. And I can't remember because it's not in my notes. I'm, it just came to me now. And I don't know if it's Psalms or Proverbs, but I, it says he'd never seen the righteous forsaken. You know, I minister to a lady who is affected by a disease and is restricted to her home and she can't get out, and she's on SSI. She lives paycheck to paycheck. She lives in a low-income apartment. She has no need that's not being met. May not be met by the level we would like, but she has no need that is not being met. And that's by God's providence. That's by God's providence. And what Peter and what Jesus is saying in this verse is, get your eyes off the horizontal and get it vertical. Because if you start looking around, Peter, at the waves, you're going to start to sink. Keep your eyes on me. Our inheritance is not of this world. And in this world, it was never supposed to be. Our inheritance is assured, and it's incorruptible, undefiable, and unfading. Peter continues, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 5. This verse will require some unpacking, so let's get to it here. First, when Peter says who, he's not just referencing our inheritance, which he just spoke about. Who is an all-inclusive word that incorporates not only our inheritance, but the salvation and the hope that he previously spoke of. And all three identified are different things, but they're all joined and knit together by God's love and mercy in our redemption. And all of these are kept by the power of God. Now, what does that mean? Albert Barnes, in his commentary, wrote this about the power of God in relationship to what we're talking about. If it were left to the will of man, to the strength of his own resolutions, to his power to meet temptations and to any probability that he would himself continue to walk in the path of life, there would be no certainty that anyone would be saved. You know, what Barnes is saying here is, we are kept by the power of God. We are kept by the power of God. And absent of His power in keeping us, we would fall. We have no power to do that. 
It's God's power. It's not within man's power to save himself. And it's not within the power of man to keep his salvation. Both are from the power of God. And he keeps it by his power. Now your Bibles may say, kept. As the ESV says, guarded. Either way, it's a term that means guarded like a garrison with troops against all threats to its security. And when I think of that, I think of the weapon storage areas where the Air Force stores their nuclear weapons. I don't think you could put anything else in there to protect them. They got remote-controlled automatic weapons, 20-some security forces, armored vehicles. Everybody's got more rounds than they could possibly fire. Anybody that would ever attempt, it would be a bad day. It's guarded. It's secured. There's no entrance. You're not getting in. Not only does God's power keep us, it protects us from ourselves and the temptations and drawing away from God. God's power keeps you from you and your sinful nature. Although we may stray at times and walk in sin, God's power will not allow you to be lost. Think of that. He also protects us from the enemy who would love to rob and steal and keep and keeping him at bay, giving him no power over you. Satan had to have permission from God to do what he did to Job. And Job was kept by God's power. Not Job's intestinal fortitude and courage and strength and Job girding up his loins or whatever it was. What is it, girding up or whatever? It's girding up his trousers or whatever. It was God's power that kept Job. And the enemy has no power over you. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Those are some big doors. And they're unaccessible to Satan. You know, last week, my wife, in relationship to my preaching on election, thought I was going to say something uh, about eternal security. Or in other words, once saved, always saved. Now, I am not a fan of that statement. And the reason why I'm not a fan of that statement is because I believe it just skips over the surface of what the doctrine of election and eternal security really is. And it's usually quoted by people who don't live for the Lord but claim an inheritance from Him. In other words, they can live whatever way they want. They're God's. That's self-deception. That's not understanding Scripture. My response to my wife was, in fact, I did speak on eternal security when I read from the Westminster Confession of Faith and what it says about the preservation of saints. Brothers and sisters, for those who are saved and have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, all of that was done by the power of God. So too is your preservation by God. You are in the palm of the Lord's hand. And there will be no way that you can be snatched out. 
Peter promoted the doctrine of, pre of, of the preservation of saints. Paul taught on the doctrine of the preservation of saints. It is a consistent theme throughout the New Testament. Now, what does that bring as far as hope to us? Is that even despite ourselves, sometimes our sinful nature, we cannot be lost by God and that He will always bring us back. Praise God that God, we don't have a God that goes, you know what, I'm done with you. You know, a lot of people think that God was truly intentional on getting rid of His people when He told Moses, I'm done with them. And Moses interceded and said, no, God, you can't do that. What really happened was that was a test for Moses because Moses was saying that all the way up until that point. Finally, Moses came to the point of serving those people despite who they were. God never washes his hand of you. When people say, God's distance from me, that's because we take that step, not God. Now, up until this point, we see what God has done and is doing as it relates to our salvation and this living hope that we walk in. Now, Peter identifies our part, and that is a part of faith. All we're required to do in relationship to all that God has done for us is to believe and trust in Him. That's it. I know it sounds easy, but it's hard, right? But that's all He asks of you, to believe and trust in Him. And if you truly believe and trust in Him, it will change you. It's not an intellectual thing. It's a transformation thing. For God has built a garrison upon which our salvation, our hope, and our inheritance lies. And our faith gives us admission and residence to that garrison. God's power does not only keep our salvation, our hope, and our inheritance. It also excites our faith in Him. And this is kept by Him as well. Our faith in Christ is the only thing that keeps us connected to the Father. Without it, we're lost. We have nothing without faith. And the most amazing thing about God's power is it also keeps your faith. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He didn't even leave that up to you, praise God. It's by His power that our faith is kept. And he works it in men. And at the end of verse 5, and in the end, when this world comes to a close, our living hope that we have by way of Christ's resurrection, kept by the power of God, will be revealed, whether taken home when our time is up on this earth, or by way of his rapture, or his establishment of his kingdom on this earth, it will reveal soon the inheritance that we have been given. And it will be to all the world 
a true witness of Christ. And God's word says that's when every knee will bow and every mouth will confess that he is Lord. You know, I spoke about my mom in the beginning of the service. For those of you that don't know, and for those that do, please allow me to retell this story. During my mother's funeral, the priest told of a visit he had with my mother prior to her death. In this visit, he asked her if Jesus was her Lord and Savior. And my mom's response was yes. You see, the cancer that my mom had caused her to reprioritize where she placed her hope. At one time, my mom placed her hope in that which she could save. On her deathbed, she placed her hope in whom could save her. Brothers and sisters, let us not place our faith in the things of this world, but let us place our hope in the resurrected Christ and the eternal and the life with a living hope, assured of our salvation and our inheritance, because it's all being kept by the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for using Peter as a vessel to communicate your word. And thank you for the promises, Father, that we see in your word. And Father, we thank you for the living hope that you have given us. Father, let us leave here this morning with your words on our heart. And no matter what we face in this world, Lord, the uncertainty of markets, the uncertainty of jobs, the uncertainty of situations we find ourselves in, let it never dash the living hope that you placed in us. Because, Father God, you gave us that living hope to live this life on this earth for you, for your glory. And I pray that we would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.